0: The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Two centuries ago today, November seventeenth, eighteen twenty, Nathaniel Palmer and his crew became the first Americans to see Antarctica. Captain Palmer's was the third sighting of the Antarctic continent. At the beginning of 1820, uh, Edward Bransfield of the Royal Navy set foot on what he called King George Island and claimed it in the name of George III, who had, in fact... Unbeknownst to Edward Bransfield, died the previous day, January 29th, 1820. Uh, three days earlier, Captain Fabian Gottlieb Tadius von Bellingshausen's crew became the first men to discover Antarctica. Von Bellingshausen is a German name, but he was Baltic German from present-day Estonia, so he discovered Antarctica in the name of Tsarist Russia. We have another Baltic German coming up for you a little later on today's show. It's Know Your Baltic Germans Day on the Mark Stein Show. The reason Russia and the great powers got interested in finding Antarctica is that there was rumoured to be a rich and fertile continent at the South Pole. Rich and fertile. Instead, of course, they found a vast, frozen wasteland stretching to the horizon and far beyond. Life's life's a bit like that, don't you find? Uh, you can ascribe what metaphorical power to that you wish, but if you seek contemporary resonances, the only reason Nathaniel Palmer and his very small sloop, a 47-footer, uh, were down in that neck of the non-woods is because he was a seal hunter and he was seeking new seal rookeries south of Cape Horn, because the hides of Antarctic Ocean seals were a big seller for those seeking to trade with, yes, China. Today, China makes our T-shirts, China makes our trousers, China makes our laptops, China makes our smartphones, China makes our prescription drugs, China makes our new diseases and the defective masks that supposedly protect us from those new diseases. So it may be time to pile into the sloop and once again grab a piece of the seal pelt market as the only slice of the economy left to us. Ah, yes, the vast icy waste as far as the eye can see. I did three hours of granular stuff on the post-election landscape on America's number one radio show yesterday, including a jaw-dropping interview with presidential lawyer Sidney Powell the upshot of which is that vote counting is one of those jobs Americans won't do, so it's all been offshore to Canadians, Venezuelans, Spaniards, Germans, and no doubt somewhere in the background, Chairman Xi and the CHICOMs. If you're wondering whether there have been any exciting developments in the election without end, well... The Secretary of State's office has just confirmed the audit of Georgia's presidential race, has now uncovered 2,600 previously uncounted ballots that's in Floyd County. State officials are calling for Floyd County's elections manager to step down with the state sending investigators to Floyd to get to the bottom of how this happened. And it looks like it was an early vote. Half of an early vote box, essentially that did not get uploaded into their election night reporting system. And again, it's unfortunate, but it's not an equipment issue. Again, it's a person. Not executing their job properly. The state says it's been trying to speak directly with the Floyd election manager, but he is in quarantine, as are Sterling, who you just heard from, as well as the Secretary of State, due to possible exposure to coronavirus. Oh, dear. So we'd love to clean up the dirty, rotten, stinking election system, but unfortunately, all the county officials are in quarantine for the resurgent COVID. Thank you, Georgia. Everything is stupid now. There is no point in absolute terms in having a two-year campaign for a four-year presidential term. It's moronic, and the founding fathers would have been the first to point that out. As I've said, their reaction would be, come back, George III, all is forgiven if this is the alternative. But to have a two-year presidential campaign decided in the small hours by foreign voting machines with algorithms connected to the Internet is merely an expensive form of national suicide. I'm thinking of founding the American Parliamentary Party, whose platform is to have six-week election campaigns for non-fixed-term legislatures uh, and to separate the offices of head of state and head of government. You wind up with the same lousy, duplicitous, third-rate political class, but you get there a lot quicker and a lot cheaper And uh, the political class is greatly diminished in stature and it frees up a year and 10 months to do something more useful for your country. By the way, Elections Canada is now boasting, boasting that it does not use Dominion voting systems. As I mentioned with Sidney Powell, their optical vote scanners are used in some uh, provincial elections, mainly in the Maritimes, I think, but not nationally. Uh, So Dominion voting systems (laughs) are not used by the Dominion of Canada. How about that? It's strictly for export. Quote, Elections Canada does not use Dominion voting systems. We use paper ballots counted by hand in front of scrutineers and have never used voting machines or electronic tabulators to count votes in our 100-year history. Unquote. Paper ballots counted by hand in front of scrutineers. Oh, my. And, you know, the great advantage of not introducing any of this new time-saving technology to the process uh, is that you get your election night results on election night instead of still waiting for them two weeks later. Other than that, listen to what Sydney and I had say on Rush. We've posted the transcript if you're interested, as a lot of people seem to be. Uh, meanwhile, back in what passes for the real world, what's the takeaway from these last eight months? There is a sottovoce emerging consensus from the globalists, murmured at the end of Zoom calls when they've switched off the live stream, that 2021 will be the year they consign populism to the garbage heap of history. 2016 was peak populism, Brexit and Trump, but then Brexit got stalled and Trump got deep-stated. And now Sleepy Joe has uh, promised to restore the new world order, starting with an executive order on the first day to rejoin The World Health Organization, so that Americans can resume paying for the Chi Com shills who are literally, literally killing us. As we noted the other day, if Biden is taking the oath of office in January, he subscribes uh, to the Brussels view of Brexit. Uh, albeit larded with the usual shamrock-hued Irish-American blarney uh, that the Irish backstop is all that stands between Erin and Boris's neo-black and tans having the run of the land. A few days ago, the Vote Leave gang departed Downing Street, Dominic Cummings clearing out his desk and exiting via the front door of Number 10 with a cardboard box a uh, a shot that looks like he's auditioning for a revival of my old chum Armando Yannucci's series, The Thick of It. That's the uh, forerunner of Veep, if you're American. As I suggested in our summer tale for our time, The Prisoner of Windsor, the transitional arrangements are starting to look rather permanent. Uh, And The Prisoner of Windsor follows that to its uh, reductio ad absurdum, it's a way of keeping the UK de facto in the European Union from an economic administrative point of view, while de jure uh, no longer having to listen to their whiny, obstructive uh, prime ministers and emissaries putting their foot down about Brussels' wackier super-state ambitions. Is Boris the chap to stand up to this? He's currently quarantining again because he supposedly was exposed to a chap with the COVID, even though Boris has had the COVID and so in theory uh, should be immune, at least uh, this uh, this close to having it. But who knows, who cares? Boris was never a populist, just an opportunist with no fixed beliefs about anything. He likes Churchill because uh, Winston remains world famous and Clement Attlee and Stanley Baldwin do not, that's it. But if you're thinking Boris is the chapter fight on the beaches for Brexit. Well, the beaches are full of quote-unquote Syrian refugees landing every day, corona quarantine notwithstanding. Beyond that, the globalists think the COVID has killed off the populism. Populism arose... As a challenge to homo economicus, it said, uh, you know, taxes, schmaxes. It's all pretty marginal. I don't really care about a barely discernible uptick in GDP if it means mosques in every city and MS-13 in the suburbs and meth labs throughout the uh, rural districts, and you can't uh, put up a statue to anybody I was taught about in school. Culture trumps economics, and at a certain point... Even the most somnolent elector starts to notice the cultural transformation. The globalists reckon Chicom 19 has made that kind of thinking a luxury Mr and Mrs Votecaster can no longer afford. Covid has clobbered the world. It's primal. Any Biden administration will be joining Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Europe in worshipping at the first church of perpetual lockdown. Davos man with his plans for the so-called Great Reset, is betting that a guy who can't leave the house without state permission, can't go to work because he's non-essential, can't go to church, can't bury his aged parents slaughtered in the old folks' homes, can't celebrate Thanksgiving or Christmas, can't have a shag if he has the misfortune to have his sex life legislated by bonking Boris and policed by Her Majesty's Constabulary. Davos man is betting that when you're broke, and forbidden to work, economics reasserts itself, you'll be voting for the party that offers the most permanent temporary COVID alleviation package. There's some very slender evidence in support of that. Salvini in Italy, Marine Le Pen in France, AFD in Germany, all are uh, slumping to one degree or another in uh, opinion polls, if those polls are any more accurate than America's. But if populism is really about the consolations of culture, about ordinary people not wanting to end their days in a society utterly unrecognisable from the one they were school kids in, then Covid land only sharpens the contradictions. Under old school globalism, uh, you got to go and shuffle paper or whoosh up macchiatos for eight hours a day. Now you have nothing to do for those eight hours except brood on how screwed up everything is. You can't go to the pub, you can't go to a footy game, you can't go to see your favourite Partridge family tribute band. Lockdown has abolished all the consolations of culture in order to force you to confront the fact that you're a broke loser in need of state benefits, and that's all there is. We shall see. On February 22nd, three months from now, we shall mark the first anniversary of the first lockdowns in Italy. Ten municipalities in Lombardy plus one in Veneto. Uh, these lockdowns are bankrupting the developed world. We are like Wiley e. Coyote discovering that the Acme lockdown cure-all has left us 30 feet beyond the cliff. And uh, looking at the vast emptiness below us, we react by ordering the new advanced lockdown cure-all that puts us 100 feet beyond the cliff. So at a certain point, there will be no COVID benefits because there will be no money. But even before there is no money people will notice that there is no life. This just in tonight, Arlington National Cemetery is cancelling the traditional Wreaths Across America event. This is video from last year. You know, usually hundreds of volunteers, they gather at the cemetery to lay wreaths on every gravestone. But because of COVID-19, the event is now cancelled. A cemetery spokesperson tells ABC7 it is the first time it's been cancelled in recent history. Boy, we really enjoyed it last year. So it is not safe on health grounds to hold a beloved ceremony in the fresh air in a government-maintained, well-guarded open space. Uh I said yesterday on Rush that lockdown is the death of life, but at Arlington and other cemeteries it is also the death of death. If populism is the only alternative to that, it will thrive and prosper in the years ahead. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to steinonline.com club for details. The Mark Stein Club presents the 100 Years Ago Show. A capital city abandoned, a capital city in mourning, and a former capital celebrates its downfall. It's November 1920. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The capital of Armenia, Yerevan, has been evacuated as Turkish and Soviet troops close in. Hungary's Constituent Assembly has voted to ratify the Treaty of Versailles under threat of an invasion by Britain, France and Italy. The deputies rose and sang the national anthem, then voted to submit to the treaty's supposedly crushing terms and finally walked out of the chamber. The Prime Minister, Karl Hussar, has ordered that the black flag of mourning be flown over public buildings as the terms of the treaty are imposed on the Hungarian people. The Inter-Allied Control Commission has met at Munich to indicate that Bavaria must disarm its militia. In Paris, representatives of the Polish government have signed an agreement recognising the free city of Danzig as a semi-autonomous state under the authority of a League of Nations commissioner. Uh, Created by the Versailles Treaty for predominantly German-speaking residents of Poland, the free city of Danzig belongs to neither Poland nor Germany. However, in exchange for formal recognition... Poland has been granted the use of the railway system, the waterways and the seaports within the Danzig state. The Kingdom of Italy and the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes have signed the Treaty of Rapallo, settling their territorial claims on islands of the Adriatic and the eastern shore. Italy will cede Dalmatia, the free state of Fiume, and other parts of Croatia to the new Slav Kingdom and receive in return the islands of Cerso, Lucino and Uni. The Assembly of the League of Nations has held its first session at its new headquarters in Geneva with representatives of 41 nations present. Austria has applied to be the 42nd. The Russian Civil War is over, at least on the Southern Front. 135,000 Bolshevik troops have driven the Black Baron, so-called General Pyotr Wrangel, and his White Army from the Crimean Peninsula. The general has fled on the French warship Sebastopol, and his Prime Minister has taken refuge at Constantinople and conceded that the Bolsheviks have won. To the north, the Soviet Union has been celebrating the third anniversary of the October Revolution with a mass theatrical production, The Storming of the Winter Palace. 8,000 participants, directed by Nikolai Evrenov, performed the piece before an audience of 100,000 spectators. In the square in front of that Winter Palace, in St. Petersburg. The Irish Home Rule Bill has passed the House of Commons by 183 votes to 52. It provides for a Parliament of Southern Ireland and a Parliament of Northern Ireland, but with external affairs, defence, coinage and taxation remaining under the control of London. On the ground, however, events may be passing the point of no return. Kevin Barry... An Irish Republican convicted by military tribunal of the murder of three soldiers has been hanged at Mountjoy Jail in Dublin. He was 18 years old and his execution is the first such in response to the present upheaval. Kevin Barry was hanged just after seven in the morning and by the close of day, six Irish policemen were dead in reprisal attacks. James Daly, 22 years old, uh, also an Irish nationalist and a lieutenant with the Connaught Rangers serving in India, has also been executed by a firing squad after his court-martial. Earlier this year, Lieutenant Daly was part of a mutiny at the Wellington Barracks at Jalandhar in the Punjab that ran the Irish tricolor over their hut and proclaimed it Liberty Hall. Cecil Lestrange Malone an English Liberal member of the House of Commons, was in Dublin to speak at Trinity College when he was arrested and charged with sedition for a speech last week at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Mr Malone had declared that, quote, I hope the day will soon come when we shall meet here to pass a blessing on the British Revolution. Woe to all those people who get in our way, he added, and started musing on politicians who deserve to be hanged in public. Quote, What are a few Churchills or a few Curzon lampposts compared with the misery of thousands of human beings? A reference to the Secretary of State for Air, Mr Winston Churchill, and the leader of the House of Lords and former Viceroy of India, Lord Curzon. In the United States, banks in North Dakota have begun failing. In little over a week, 13 have closed their doors to depositors. The largest train robbery in American history has been pulled off after thieves broke into a rail car on the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy Railroad after it was loaded with a United States mint shipment of currency, bonds and gold in Nebraska. At the train's first stop outside of Omaha, the robbers emptied the bags from the car and loaded them into a waiting motor vehicle, unaware that the mailbags were carrying much more than the usual amount of money, orders and cash. It was originally thought they had gotten away with $1 million. It turns out to be more than $3.5 million. Rumours are that the unprecedentedly successful robbers are youths, barely out of short trousers. The former Governor of Vermont, Horace Graham, was a popular chief executive of the Green Mountain State, although limited to one term under the Vermont Republican Party's mountain rule. Honest Horace, as he's known to one and all, has also been the town moderator of Craftsbury, a small town in the north of the state, for almost two decades. Now Honest Horace has been convicted of embezzlement of some $25,000 in state funds. Despite repaying the money, he was sentenced to five years hard labour in the state penitentiary. However, just two hours later, his successor... The present governor, Percival Clement, granted Mr Graham a pardon for all his crimes. The other day, Dr George Fletcher placed a small vial containing one milligram of radium under a bandage on a female patient as a means of treating breast cancer. A few hours later, the woman decided the burning of the radium was irritating her and so went to the ladies' bathroom and flushed the contents of the vial down a toilet. Staff of the Faxton Hospital are now engaged in a frantic search for the radium through the sewer lines near the buildings. The milligram of radium is said to be worth $13,000, but that is not the reason for the search. It is also radioactive. That's it. There's a holiday, I declare. It's the bear. It's the bear. Where? Yeah. Yeah. Where? It certainly is a bear. Younger readers of the Daily Express in London are thrilled by a brand-new comic strip that has become an instant success. The doings of a little lost bear called Rupert are intended to rival the Daily Mail's adventures of Tony Tail. The new bear is drawn by Mary Tortell and written by her husband, Herbert, the Express's news editor. The picture actress, Mildred Harris, is known for her role in... His Majesty the Scarecrow of Oz, uh, and then at the age of 15 for playing a harem girl in D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. The following year, she married Charlie Chaplin. Their baby son died at just three days old, and Mr. Chaplin is said to have complained that Mildred was not his intellectual equal. Two years later, the now 18-year-old Miss Harris has been granted a divorce on grounds of cruelty. The Census Bureau has released figures showing that the year 1919 had the lowest death rate ever recorded in the United States, 12.9 deaths per 1,000 people. The year before, mostly due to the Spanish influenza, the death rate was 18 per 1,000 people. The governor of American Samoa has had a troubled time in the job. His new law forbidding marriage between US sailors and Samoan women has proved very unpopular with both parties. He has removed tribal leaders from power and dismissed the natives as stone Age children not fit to govern themselves. This in turn has led to the creation of a nationalist movement opposed to American imperialism. There have been concerns about the governor's mental stability, but the head surgeon on Tutula refused to declare Mr Tarun insane. Following a meeting with island chiefs, the governor returned to government house and fatally shot himself in a bathroom. He was 51. Abraham Kuyper, former Prime Minister of the Netherlands and a neo-Calvinist theologian who founded the country's second-largest Protestant church, is dead. He took the German side in the recent World War, having been implacably opposed to the British since the Boer War. Ludwig von Struver the German astronomer from a celebrated family of astronomers has departed for the stars. He made a name for himself in celestial mechanics, but he has not had an easy time of it since the Russian Revolution. His oldest child joined the White Army, which obliged Herr von Struve to flee to Simferopol in the Crimean Peninsula. Of his other three children... His nine-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, drowned in front of him this summer. And shortly thereafter, his 17-year-old son, Werner, expired from tuberculosis. Their father survived them by barely six months. And that's The Way of the World, November 1920. A hundred years from today, a hundred years. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. We have a brand new member to our ranks. Please welcome Donald Kilmer from the great state of Idaho. Donald writes, Dear Mark, been poaching the free section of your website for years. Finally became a member. Best purchase I've made on the internet in the past 10 years. Well, I'm glad to uh, hear that, Donald. It's it's not poaching. Uh, we have a lot of stuff out there for uh, people from the flotsam and jetsam of the uh, passing parade. And then we have some uh, more specialized benefits for those who uh, inclinations uh, tend in that direction. Donald continues, You are, to me, an expert on the bond fleming Irv, and I appreciate your approach to literature analysis. My Clubland question, I think this was uh, one of the ones we didn't get to in our Q&A last Friday, says, Why are Bond villains, who are mostly progressive statists, consistently portrayed as evil people seeking to impose a one-world leviathan, not seen as evil in the real world, e.g. Zuckerberg, Dorsey, Soros? Uh, Yes, that's a very interesting point, Donald, and quite correct. I love to read Ian Fleming because he's one of those writers incapable of writing a bad sentence. But other spy writers are awfully snotty about him. In his anthology of espionage fiction, Alan First, who is a highly regarded contemporary thriller writer He writes uh, mainly about uh, Europe in the early years of the Second World War. Uh, Alan first explains that for his anthology quote, "There were two standards for the selections in the Book of Spies: good writing, We are here in the literary end of the spectrum, thus no James Bond, and the pursuit of authenticity, unquote. Whoa, whoa! Is Ian Fleming any less authentic than, say, John le Carre, the old Tinker Tailor Soldier spy stuff post-James Bond? redefined spy fiction as a wilderness of mirrors. There were no good guys. There were no bad guys. It's just MI6 and the KGB and the CIA all mired in the same swamp of murky moral ambiguity playing uh, silly, uh, pointless games uh, removed from reality. Agent, double agent, triple agent, pseudo, triple agent, etc. A non-state post-Westphalian organizations such as Spectre actually seems more relevant uh, to the present globalized alliances between jihadists, uh, drug cartels and freelance nuke salesmen than anything in the Russia House. Actually, the Spectre board meeting is a pretty good stand-in for Davos, uh, come to that. And then we have um, the more idiosyncratic movie villains. In the very first Bond film, Dr. No, uh, The Eponymous bad guy explains his big scheme, as these supervillains are wont to do, over a bottle of Dom Pérignon 1955, and uh, Sean Connery sighs and can barely stifle his yawn. World domination, same old dream. Uh, As my old friend Anthony Lane pointed out in The New Yorker many years ago, it's the first film in the series, and 007's already bored by the dreary shtick. Of these misfits. Uh, today, as Donald says, we have George Soros, Jack Dorsey, Mark uh, Zuckerberg, plus a few supporting players like Lord Malak Brown, the voting machine <laughs> impresario, who is literally George Soros's tenant. He literally lives in George Soros's house. Uh, and they're all carrying on like a real life Spectre Board meeting. Uh, Zuckerberg and Dorsey are like the cheesier. Bond villains. Uh, Jonathan Price in Tomorrow Never Dies, who plays a media baron who knows the news before it happens. He creates the news, or at any rate the perception of the news. And that was a fairly far-fetched fancy in the days of print newspapers, but it now happens routinely uh, thanks to algorithms. Uh, Laura by the way, an Israeli member of the Stein Club writes to point out that the Facebook health warning about fake news and all these uh, elections and their super integrity, you can take it to the bank. The Facebook health warning was appended to a fan group post about the TV show Outlander, which Laura thinks uh, I would be sufficiently snooty to be unfamiliar with. Uh, But in fact, a couple of old friends of mine are in it. Uh, At any rate, Uh, As you know, if you've seen it, there's a lot of gore and sex, as Laura says, and it's nothing whatever to do with the U.S. election. But because someone used the phrase red wave to describe a fistfight in a Scottish pub in the 17th century, it triggered the algorithm to make Facebook flag the post and... uh, restrict its distribution, prevent it going viral. And it's only when things like that happen that you suddenly think, oh, yeah, algorithms run the world now. That's a very Ian Fleming-like concept, very Bond, very tomorrow never dies. Um, Zuckerberg and Dorsey do not live in literal hollowed-out volcanoes, but they live in psychological hollowed-out volcanoes. Uh, ever more cut off from the masses of humanity and ever more open about the weird utopian plans they're making for us. As Donald notes, when we see them on the screen or on the page, we understand them for what they are. In real life, alas, the madmen are the heroes and the few who stand up to them are portrayed as the madmen. I think that's because uh, when you read a story or you watch a story, you see it all played out uh, as an observer of the story. When you're actually in the story, uh, it's a lot easier to do the default thing and go along with the madman. Uh, But a madman bent on, especially, by the way, when your livelihood and your reputation depend on it, a story requires a lot less courage than reality in that sense. Um, A madman bent on world domination with an algorithm uh, would make a great 007 plot, but that will be a long time coming because the new Bond film is close to a year late and has been postponed to next spring. Tomorrow never dies. Actually, tomorrow is dead, or at any rate, uh, held in suspended animation by the COVID. And that is how good our real-world global madmen bent on world domination are. Mark Stein's Last Call. It is said that in North America and in Europe, Chinese coronavirus deaths are being overcounted, and that may well be the case. In other parts of the world, such as Africa, it may be that they're being undercounted. I say that only because the extraordinary number of dead African celebrities and powerful politicians seems at least a little out of sync with the general population. The latest leader to succumb to Chairman Xi's gift to the world is Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings, the strongman of Ghana for much of the last 40 years. The son of a Scottish chemist from Castle Douglas and a Ghanaian mother from the Volta region Flight Lieutenant Rawlings first seized power in 1979. I'm just an ordinary, hungry, screaming Ghanaian who wants to realize his creative potential, who wants to contribute. Sounds in praise of me. Please sing it in praise of Ghana and Africa, the black man. Rawlings eventually brought back multi-party democracy to Ghana, but he generally inclined to the view that the people appreciated an enlightened and benevolent strongman. Here he is with my old comrade from Channel 4 Days, dear Zainab Badawi. An unconstitutional act of a coup involves a real crisis of conscience. Did you have a similar crisis of conscience? I was not the only one. I armed well, forces. I'm talking to you no now, no, no so I understand. Can I ask you no no you, no did you have a crisis of conscience in the way that general Afrifa did in 66 I was representing the conscience of the armed forces the conscience of the nation in 1982 yes. three judges one a woman two of the men were killed in a rather gruesome fashion shot at a military range and then their bodies were burnt yeah does that, was... that trouble you um it's troubling It is, because it's regrettable. Big of him. Just two months after his mother's passing, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 73, Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings. Just about the time Mr Rawlings was plotting his first coup, England was in the grip of terror. A serial killer stalked its northern cities, the so-called Yorkshire Ripper. In Leeds, Jim Hobson's new team of policemen has now taken over the Ripper inquiry, and already they claim to have had a pile of new information from the public. But they warn women who've been going out armed with knives and sharpened steel combs that they do risk arrest for carrying offensive weapons. Tonight, one hospital in Leeds is on red alert after telephone threats that one of the nurses there would be the Ripper's 14th victim. The deep sense of fear and resentment that has built up in this Yorkshire community after five years of fruitless police inquiries into these brutal murders is hard to convey. I came to Leeds last week to report on the sad sequence to a dreadful killing, to follow the 13th murder hunt that struggled to find the Yorkshire Ripper. The scene here at Millgarth, the main police station in Leeds, was all too familiar. The Ripper incident room, awash with statements of witnesses and reports. Policemen working all around the clock. But somehow, here in the streets of West Yorkshire, there's a feeling that all the police can do is sift through the same evidence yet again. No, there's a much stronger feeling about. It's almost tangible. It's a feeling of deep revulsion. A wall of hate directed at the psychopath who's called himself Jack the Ripper. In January 1981, Yorkshire police stopped a man driving with a 24-year-old prostitute and with fake number plates on his car, claiming he was, quote, bursting for a pee. He was allowed into a gentleman's toilet where he secreted two knives, a hammer and a rope. The peelers had their man, Peter Sutcliffe. He is being questioned in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper murders. It is anticipated that he will appear before the court in Dewsbury tomorrow. Can you tell us whether he has a Geordie accent? I cannot tell you that because I have not heard him speak. Can you give us any details? I can tell you that we are absolutely delighted. With developments at this
1: stage. Absolutely delighted. Can you, can, can you all smile? Really delighted. <laughs> delighted as well.
0: The delight and the smiles and the general tone of that police press conference were felt to be inappropriate given the general sloth and incompetence of the Ripper investigation. He served almost four decades in jail until earlier this month at the University Hospital of North Durham, he refused treatment for COVID-19. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 74, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. For almost as long as I can remember, Saib Erekat was with his female counterpart, Hanan Ashrawi, the acceptable face of the Palestine Liberation Organization. On the ground in the West Bank and Gaza, Yasser Arafat would be knee-deep in rent boys and the hardcore types of quote-unquote nationalists would be roaring about driving every last Jew into the sea. But there on CNN and the BBC would be the urbane, bespoke Erekat smoothing over all the unpleasantness. The very Model of a modern major house trained peace negotiator. There was no peace, of course, and the act gets harder to keep up when it's all total bollocks. Mr. Erecat faded in importance as the new century wore on and was last seen over the summer raging at President Trump's recent deals with the Middle East, which the official negotiator angrily claimed had eliminated any possibility of peace between the Palestinians and Israelis, and complained furthermore that his Arab neighbours had stabbed him and kicked him in the ass, as he put it. Dr Erekat, uh, thank you very much for talking to Sky News. Can you tell me, first of all, what was your immediate reaction when you heard that the United Arab Emirates were normalising relations with Israel? I, I knew that Kushner managed to make me go with my own goal at the 94th minute. And The way I viewed it and the shock I received actually is that, wow, with an Arab country, Kushner managed to slap me and to kick me in the ass and to really put me in a position where he's implementing his agreement at, with the tools, with an Arab tool. That's that's the, the, the that's the seriousness of the situation. And for what? What do, you, what do you gain out of that? You, you have the blessing now of, of of Kushner and Trump. You have the blessing of Netanyahu, who poked you on the eye. Thirty seconds later, when he told you annexation is on the table, I'm going to do it. When he told you no Palestinian state. When he told you I'm going to continue with settlements. How do you face up with these things? answer had to be with an Arab dagger, poisonous dagger in my back. That's what he did. A poisoned dagger in his back. Well, that is the Arab way. In the end, it was not an Arab dagger, but Chicom 19 that got him. He spent his final days in, of course, an Israeli hospital, the Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 65, all of these men are the victims of Chairman Xi. Some stories of Chicom 19 are too sad. Raiden Gonzalez is a little boy in San Antonio about to celebrate his fifth birthday. It will be the first of many birthdays without his young parents. Fatally infected by the kiss of Xi, three months apart and apparently from entirely separate sources. He refers to them as angels in the clouds. A four-year-old is now trying to understand that both of his parents are gone after each of them lost their battles with COVID just months apart. <laughs> Reading Gonzalez laps and plays with his favorite toys. But at his young age, the four-year-old has already dealt with two great losses. How much do you love your mom and dad? Um in 100 seconds with one. <laughs> His mom and dad lost their battle to COVID-19 within a hundred days from each other. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm being left behind.
1: You know, it's, uh, it's
0: It's very hard. His father, Adan, was exposed to the virus while at work, according to his family. He tested positive June 3rd and was hospitalized June 9th. They did say he was one of two of the sickest in the hospital. He passed June 26th after spending nearly a month in the ICU. Days and months go by. Mariah was mourning but was healthy until October 5th. She went by ambulance Monday evening, probably around 930 and by 8.14 a.m. on Tuesday, she was gone. Their loss forever impacting their four-year-old son. This is a milestone birthday. He's been very upset because, you know, his mom and dad are not here to celebrate with him. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 33, Adan Gonzalez, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 29, while planning her husband's memorial, Mariah Gonzalez. Tricom 19 killed off this year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's also killed Eurovision songwriters and Eurovision performers. Here is Reinhardt, the mononymous Belgian singer-songwriter representing his country in the 1988 Eurovision Contest in Dublin. Next to Belgium, who were host to this competition last year and they'd never won before until 1986, so... Can they do it so soon again? Well, the man with the task is Reinhardt, who in spite of a penchant for serious issues in his writing, has given us a very lyrical title. Laissez briller le soleil, let the sun shine, or to give it its official title in English, the sun could shine in your heart. you. Let the sun shine. Not the greatest song. 32 years ago, it came 18th out of 21 entries, winning only 5 points, 5 points from the French jury. But it is a message for our times. Because the best protection against the Covid is sunlight. Uh, Vitamin D, vitamin D, according to taste from that big yellow ball in the sky. It reduces your chances of catching the virus by 50%. And if you do catch it, it reduces your chances of long-term damage from Chicom 19 by 50%. So, laissez briller le soleil, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 65, the would-be Belgian pop star, Reinhardt. That will do it for today's show. See you on the telly tomorrow with Tucker and I'll be right here later this week for a brand new tale for our time. Stay safe, stay free, may the sun shine on you. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.